In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So on a day like today, and this time of year, it's um, a typical thing where we pull down from our shelves, or pull up online and you know, send off posts of famous words of those who kind of have distilled the essence of what America is. And, and so we turn to some of those more ancient voices. We, we pull up uh, you know, Franklin and, and um, John Adams and, and Thomas Jefferson. I think this afternoon I'm going to make my kids watch episode two of the, the John Adams miniseries on HBO. Yeah, it was a great miniseries about what happened during July 4th. We, we appeal to those voices to help us understand the origin story. We, we also appeal to voices who, who cherish its origins, but who are also loving enough of this country to challenge some of its disconnects. Uh, somebody like Frederick Douglass. If you ever have a chance to read his, his essay or his, his speech he gave, what is the 4th of, of July to the slave? You will, you will hear in him words that both honor uh, that beginning of the story but also excoriate some of the, 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 the disconnects that, that were in full view even at that origin. But there's another voice that, that we get trotted out at this time of year that maybe is more obscure, but certainly has something to say. And, and from an outsider's perspective, uh, there was a Frenchman by the name of Alexis de Tocqueville who came to this country in 1831 and spent almost a year just touring, just observing, taking notes. And then he goes home, and he writes a two-volume work called Democracy in America. And it's a Frenchman's view, and, and, and uh, you know, the, the French Revolution and the American Revolution, shall we say, were totally different experiences. But one Frenchman's view of looking at a country who was barely 50 years old, and, and he had to note these ironies. He said this, at first sight, there is something surprising in this strange unrest of so many happy men, restless in the midst of abundance. The spectacle itself, however, is as old as the world. The novelty is to see a whole people furnish an exemplification of it. Among democratic nations, men easily attain a certain equality of condition, but they can never attain as much as they desire. And at every moment they think they're about to grasp it, it escapes at every moment from their hold. They are near enough to see its charms, but too far off to enjoy them, and before they have fully tasted its delights, they die. I know, Frenchmen always try to get their you know, licks in when it comes to America, but he's noting some ironies. That to be part of the American experiment, it is true, it did throw off one tyranny, but he, he would like to say that in throwing off one tyranny, you, you maybe adopted another form of enslavement, but of your own devising. And that though you, you sought to secure peace um, from, from one um, turmoil, you ended up embracing another inner turmoil because you created for yourself a longing which could never be satisfied. And therefore, whereas independence is a thing that is true and on that day was declared, independence does not really guarantee a true freedom on itself alone. It can't. It never was intended to be. Now, his is one voice, but I think the Tocqueville invites us to do not just one thing, but two things on a day like this. We should be grateful. We should also reflect. 
We have reason to celebrate. But that's no excuse for not also seeking to be reformed. A reformation, a repentance, if you will, wherever the case may be. And that's why somebody like James Baldwin said this. He says, I love America more than any other country in the world. And exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. You, you, you call out those you love. It's not an act of love to be silent. This country began with a declaration of independence. But independence alone is not a path to true freedom. That's what de Tocqueville, I think, is out to say. But I think someone confirms that idea also. And what confirms his thinking is the psalm that we're going to listen to today. Psalm 125. This summer, we have been, if you will, listening to Israel's national anthems. The songs that they would sing as they would walk to the annual barbecue up in Jerusalem where there was no pork. Was all brisket. Okay? That's why Texas has better barbecue. Sorry. Um, sorry. They would march three times a year. They would ascend. These are one of the songs of ascent. And they would sing their national anthems. And, and what this psalm today is going to tell us is this. True freedom does not come from independence. True freedom is found in a declaration of your dependence. And that's what the psalm will do. And that's what we're going to hear in the psalm. And we're going to hear at least three things that we depend on God for. And then the question is, how do we declare our dependence in some sort of meaningful way? What do we depend on him for? Three things. And how do we declare that dependence? We're in Psalm 125. I wonder if you might stand to hear. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. That sounds familiar. Which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I think the psalmist, if he could, he would have loved to see the invention of drones. <laughs> because this first two verses of the passage kind of invites us to take a drone flyover of Jerusalem. Anybody been to Jerusalem? Raise your hand if you've been to Jerusalem. A few of you? A few of you? I, I, I've never been. I'd love to go. So you have an understanding of the scale and of the landscape and how Jerusalem represents sort of the high point of anything else around there. That's why they call these the Psalms of Ascent. Wherever you were coming from, it was likely lower than where Jerusalem is. So you'd have to ascend to go to one of those um, festivals and where you would eat and sing and you would sing these songs. And what the psalmist wants us to first see as we do this drone flyover of Jerusalem is Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is not the, the largest mountain around there. It is not the tallest, but it's not moving. It's not going anywhere. Mount Zion is the place where the 
the precursor to the Holocaust Museum is. Mount Zion, if you were with us last week, we, we, we showed a clip from Schindler's List. Mount Zion is where Oscar Schindler is buried. The hymn writer Horatio Spafford, who wrote, It is well with my soul, is buried on Mount Zion. But what the psalmist is out to tell us in invoking the image of Mount Zion is an image of immovability. Next time you go to Mount Mitchell, next time you go to Craggy, just stare at it for a minute and realize that thing's not going anywhere. It is not moving. And the psalmist is invoking Mount Zion, and I invoke for you Mount Mitchell and Craggy to tell you this. Those who would trust in the Lord, who, who would entrust themselves to him, who would walk in his way and be vulnerable before him and, and give their lives unto him, what they depend on him for and what they receive in him is stability. We are looking to God for stability. You can use other words to reflect that idea of resilience, of unflappability, but what really is the meaning of that stability? Um, Israel knew plenty of days of being unstable. So in what sense do they mean that we trust in the Lord for stability? Let's, let's first of all go wide angle here with what that might mean. Because remember, most of these psalms are not written just sort of to individuals. Sometimes they are, but a lot of times they're written to a people. So how do we think of stability at the, at the scale of a people, of a nation? You and I both know, without having to think very long or hard, what most threatens a people. When there is the absence of humility, or a refusal to participate in forgiveness, or just a, a, a low-down lack of love, that society will crumble. And wherever we see the absence of humility, the lack of forgiveness, the, the refusal to love, it, it will fall apart. It, it can't not. To think of Israel, what is baked in to the DNA, boy, the mixed metaphors here, what is baked into the DNA of Israel is, is humility. You're not God, Israel. I am. Judge accordingly. You are called to forgiveness because I have rescued you in more ways than you know and I have offered you a way that you might be reconciled to me at every turn. And love is at the center of who God is, and therefore you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those ideas are baked into that society. That builds stability. Where any of those things is missing, it's like a three-legged stool. You pull one of those legs out, you can't sit. There's no foundation. So that's stability at a, at a macro level, at a, at a, at a society-wide level. That's that, that's where stability comes from. It's composed of those virtues. But let's, let's, narrow, it in, let's narrow it in closer here. What, what does stability look like at the individual level? Because that's what we usually think about in, you know, America, individualism. It's kind of like, you know, that's the air we breathe. What does it mean to be stable as an individual? Um, newsflash, you and I probably know more about what it feels to be unstable than stable. Am I right? <laughs> um, we get it. Um, we're unstable in so many ways, and, and the question is, how do we, maybe, maybe the best way to understand what stable is or stability is, is to flesh out the experience of instability. There's a, a writer I introduced to you before, his name is Freddie DeBoer, he's, a, he's an author up in New York, I think, um, he's, he's written a bit, he's, he's very candid in his writing, uh, he professes no faith in anything but nihilism, but he wrote an article a few years ago called, um, Why is Everybody Such a Wreck? <laughs> Great question, right? And, and in the article, uh, 
he, he speaks very candidly about people he's known. He said this, I've known people in my life who are the most outwardly secure and confident, who never betrayed a hint of doubt or guilt or remorse, who projected cool at all times, who were quite popular, who received plaudits and positive affirmation from others at all times, who were academically and professionally successful, who had money and respect, who cultivated the kinds of micro-celebrity that are common to contemporary life, and yet, and yet the flow of life revealed that inside they hated themselves fully and completely and at any time, let alone all the time. None of that stuff mattered to them. None of it could get at the core of self-hatred within. They could never fool themselves. That's instability. The, the, the thing that you outwardly project, you know, belying what really is true of you in your inmost places, that's instability. And we're familiar with that. We, we hear a story like that, and, and you don't even have to be academically or professionally gifted to know what it feels like to want to put forth a face and realize and you go home and you close the door, you're another person. That's instability. So what is stability? Stability is being anchored to something that will not change. And the thing about everything in this world is it will all change. Everything that you and I have, everything that you and I love, has the irreducible properties of being able to degrade, disappear, devalue, or die. Everything. You hitch your wagon to any of that, so to speak, you are inviting a world of instability into your life. You and I like to think of, metaphorically speaking, our anchor. We all have an anchor. We all, we all tie ourselves to something that we think will hold us up in the midst of a storm. That's our anchor. But to anchor yourself to any of those things that can disappear or degrade or devalue or die, that is like tying the anchor to your own leg. And then when the storm comes, you weigh anchor and then you go down with the anchor. That's instability. What then is the alternative? The psalmist is offering us this alternative. Those who depend on the Lord are anchoring themselves to something that will not change they are anchoring themselves to a love that will not change. It cannot degrade, disappear, devalue, or die. And that's why he's properly known as our anchor of the soul. There's a name that was, I, I learned uh, just last week. Her, her name is Eddie Hilesum. She was a Dutch Jew. She was heavily influenced, I'm told, by Russian literature and Christian theology. She was, as many countless Jews were in that World War II, she went to Auschwitz. But somehow, she would record her prayers in a journal, and somehow that journal was preserved. And so I want to read you a prayer that she wrote in her journal as she's walking behind barbed wire in the middle of a death camp. Listen to what she said. Listen to what she prayed. You have made me so rich, O oh God. Please, 
Let me share out your beauty with open hands. My life has become an uninterrupted dialogue with you, O God. One great dialogue. Sometimes when I stand in some corner of the camp, my feet planted on your earth, my eyes raised toward your heavens, tears sometimes run down my face, tears of deep emotion and gratitude. At night, when I lie in bed and rest in you, O God, tears of gratitude run down my face, and that is my prayer. She's in a death camp writing this. This, friends, is stability in him. This is a belief that if they exterminate me, he is still God, and I am still his. This is what we're called to depend on from him. It's not the only thing, though. There's a second thing that we're called to depend on him for. And in order to do that, we've got to hop back on our drone and go over Jerusalem again. And this time, rather than focus on the city, to notice the mountains that are around it. Which he says there in verse 2, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. There are seven hills that surround Jerusalem. Mount Scopus, Mount Ophel, one you've heard of, Mount of Olives, where Jesus was on the night that he was betrayed, and of course Mount Zion. And those mountains are a buffer. My father was from Oklahoma, and he was raised during the Dust Bowl. And therefore, it was inevitable for me, a child of an Oklahoman that grew up in the Dust Bowl, to learn about the person named Will Rogers. My, mother, my grandmother is buried in Claremore, where Will Rogers is from, where his museum was, whose museum I can still see. Oh, I got a little lasso. I was a kid. I got a little, because he was a lasso. But I, I, to this day, I'm, I'm sure that Will Rogers probably was the inspiration for Twitter, because he was a statesman, but he would always speak these really pithy, succinct little phrases to communicate a truth. And, and that was no less true of something that he said of America that I remember very vividly. He said this, no nation has ever had two better friends that we have. You know what they are? The Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. You know, just, the, just the geographical proximity, the geographical location of where you are is its own providence, is its own protection. And that is what the psalmist is out to say unto us who would entrust ourselves to God, that by our trust in him, not only do we have a stability, we have a security. Now, what does that mean? Because remember, Israel has a little of experience about being overrun by foreign imperial forces and being carted off into exile. So, so they know a thing or two about sometimes having some sort of physical geographic protection, but they also know when that even the hills would not protect them. So what is this security? And more importantly, what, what is this security for us? Let me put it in very individualistic terms. Every single one of you, at no matter what age you are, what you're experienced of, you have been the subject or the object of ridicule, of complaint, of criticism, of verbal assaults, of excoriation. You know, it all lands on a spectrum somewhere, but you get hit and you take fire. How you respond in those moments is indicative of something deep. Some of us, when that stuff comes, our first instinct is to crawl into the fetal position and avoid all contact with anybody and loathe and despise and hide. That's one. But there's another one 
that when that stuff comes your way, you go find your metaphorical flamethrower and unload. You either crumple or you pull out your torch. And beloved, either of one of those responses to when you take fire is an evidence of insecurity. Because you are either out to be convinced that you are defenseless or that by God I will defend you and I will end you. Both of those are insecurity. What does security look like? Um, last month, my family, we were in St. Augustine, and we took a dolphin cruise. And so we're cruising through Matanza Bay. Matanza, right? Did I pronounce it? Did I get it right? I got it wrong. The Floridians are in the room going, just stop, just stop. <laughs> it's, the, it's the bay around St. Augustine. And uh, right there in St. Augustine, if you've been there, raise your hand if you've been there, um, there's the Castillo de San Marcos, right? This 17th century fort built shortly after the establishment of St. Augustine. And back in the 17th century, you know, you don't have um, steel. So they had to work with what they had. And what they built those exterior walls with was this sedimentary rock, deeply compressed, dense, crushed shell limestone wall. It's called coquina. And the whole fort is built of coquina. And again, it's this, it's, it's this wall this, that has the property of pliancy. And you think, you're going you're gonna to build a fort with that? Really? I mean, it's, it's almost soft. Why? Interestingly enough, they, they, ha- they used what they had. But when cannon fire would come their way, you know what would happen? It would not just rip through the wall, thinking that it would. And it would not hit a really hardened um, really dense wall that would just sort of pulverize it and, and turn it to naught, the cannon fire would embed itself in the wall. Wouldn't bounce off, wouldn't run through, wouldn't pulverize, it would embed itself. And then the soldiers at the Castillo at night when the cannon fire would tamp down, they would come back out, they would disembed the cannon fire from the wall and take it themselves and use it the next day for their own ammunition. Weren't they brilliant for coming up with a security fence like that? What's, that my, what's my point here? You all will take fire. I will take fire. Stuff will come your way. But a heart, a coquina-lined soul, will take that fire. But it will not be pulverized. And it will not bounce back and try to end those that are coming your way. It will do something else. It will, it will be resilient. That's security. What does that look like from a theological perspective, though? Where do you find that security? You let God most tell you who you are and who you belong to. You let his take mean most to you. That's that's security. If you let anybody else or anything else define you, tell you who you are, then you have set yourself up for a world of insecurity. Man, I know this story. I struggle with this story. That's why what was most something I heard for the first time this week that I'd never heard of before, Barnard of Clairvaux, 12th century theologian. He said that the path with God, the pilgrimage with God, is actually um, four loves that come in four stages. Uh, The first stage we're all very familiar with. It's the love of self. Ask any parent of a toddler about what the love of self looks like, and they'll just point at their kid. We all know what it is. It's how we all started. We know how to love ourselves. I know what I know what I need. That's the love of self. 
you got to progress. What's the next progression? Bernard would say, the love of God, but for your own self's sake. Like for what he does for me. Like what have you done for me lately, right? It's, it's I love you, but come on. You need to deliver. Whatever itch you have, he scratches. So you love God for your sake. That's second stage. And then Bernard says the third stage is this, where you love God just for his own sake. You know, if, if God doesn't ever do another thing for you, if he, if he doesn't deliver you from all your pain, but because of who he is and of what you know him to be, you just love him for who he is, that's, that's just loving God for who he is. That's, that's hard. So what's the fourth stage? When I heard this, it stopped me in my tracks. It's not loving yourself. It's not loving God for your own sake. And it's not loving God just for his sake. It's loving yourself for God's sake. What? L- loving myself for God's sake? How is that different from the other one where I'm loving God for my sake? I'll tell you what it means. It means you can't hate yourself or harm yourself because God loves you too much. Because in the depths of your shame, whatever it might be, no matter what rationale you offer to despise yourself for what you've done, you can't despise yourself because God loves you. Oh, no, that love may come through all manner of ways. That love may come through chastisement. That love may come through discipline, but you can't despise yourself for God's sake because of the way God loves you. Now, Bernard is, is honest enough to say that, that if we ever feel that or sense that or experience that, it, it, it comes in glimpses. But when you love yourself for God's sake, you know about a stability that that's, that's freedom, friends. You and I don't have to go to bed at night wondering or worrying about what somebody might have thought. I'm preaching to myself, friends. But that's security. And it's desirable. The question is, is it attainable? How do we get there? I got one more thing to tell you before I get there. Because not only do we depend on God for stability, and not only depend on God for security, we also depend on God for something that's rather prominent in the rest of the passage. Verses 3 and 4 and 5, they kind of shift into a different mode if you were listening. Words like good, evil, righteous, evil, those who are upright in heart and those who turn quickly aside to their crooked ways. So we've, we've kind of shifted into a different theme here of, of a moral frame. And, and perhaps the most difficult passage in the text is what he says in verse 3. Hear it one more time again. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. The reason the psalmist says we should have confidence that God is our stability and our security is because God is out to give us integrity. That our integrity before him depends on him. Integrity is where we know what is good and do what is good. Integrity is when the interior of our hearts match the exterior of our hands and our work. Integrity is when our heart and our hands align with who God is. That's integrity. It's a very biblical word. And this text is saying that our integrity depends on our trust in the Lord. 
Look, we, we're a nation that threw off monarchy, but we probably still know what a scepter is. A scepter is, you know, sort of this long, typically golden, often ornate, bejeweled, ornamented thing, and it would signify authority. But when the psalmist says in verse 3, the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land of the allotted, lest they be tempted to disobey, he is saying this, malicious rulers can make malicious people that the way in which malicious rulers act can so influence people as to make them copies of him or herself. And yet what he is saying in this passage is that God will intervene to prevent a nation, a people, from becoming, falling under the, the thumb of one who acted with malice and cruelty. He will intervene. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you a picture of this, and I, I, I hope I'm not trivializing it, but, but I've, I can't find a more vivid picture of what it looks like for God to want to intervene to stop uh, that which has authority and malice from swallowing us up and making us into himself. Um, this happened Friday. Friday, we, we have chickens in our backyard, and um, we introduced about 12 or 15 new chicks into the group, and um, one of our kids goes out to the coop on Friday morning and opens up the coop, and there's a black snake And he's got three bulges in his tummy. And he's already come after it. Obviously, the signal flare is shot off. Mom, Dad, come quickly. So here's what happened. And let me just say, I wish my family dynamics were... These are our family dynamics when, when we're under fire. This is not exactly an example of grace under pressure. But, but, but here's 90 seconds of terror. <laughs> what do you want me to do? I don't Okay, I'm waking it. Come over here, Savannah, so you can see it better. I don't want to get near no, 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 it. No, 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 it'll, it'll be awake no, as soon as this comes no, around, no, around no, it, trust me. Where are you grabbing? Oh! Where do you want me oh, to go? Oh my god! <laughs> I got the top. This kid is going to laugh so hard at this. Now don't let him loose. That's your most important job. Did you let him loose? Oh, oh crap. That's huge. Jeez. Are you catching this? Oh! Yes. Don't let him go. I'm trying not to. Oh my, oh my gosh. Dad away. He is Dad so away. fat, I never. <laughs> oh my gosh. Of course he's fat. He ate two of our chicks. Oh my gosh. Gotta get the fat part. You oh. had him. Get the fat part. He slithers out of it, honey. We'll grab it hard. Ready? He won't stay in my grasp. Really? He's thick boy. Ready? Oh, oh, oh my Ready? gosh. Ready? Get him in there. Get him. Ah. No, no, pick him up. Pick him up. Pick him up. Pick him up. You gotta keep doing it that way to get him all the way. Look, look, look at that tail. Look at that tail. Yep, he's a that's big boy. He's a big boy. Maybe twist it. Whenever you pick him up, twist it. Why yeah, like like spaghetti. On the spot? Just it kill like it. Trying zit inside his body. Twist it. Once you grab him, twist it. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> yeah, give her, grab him in several places. Okay, there you go. You got him. You got him. You go, give me that. Give me that. <laughs> give me that. <laughs> I got him. I got him. Nope. Nope. Kill him. No. Kill it. Kill it. Kill it. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Let him go. He's a big guy. Where's the top? I got it. I got it. I got it. Got to put it in the middle. One, two. Move it. Calls for its death, for its being dispatched. We just, we, we captured it. We, we relocated it to another place where he'll, he'll be fine. She, I don't know, whatever. 
But look, in, in the moment, we, we sprung to action. Those who were most vulnerable and weak and who, who were under the, the, look, the snake was just doing his job. I know, I know. He's not, he's not being malicious. He's just hungry. I get it. So don't press the metaphor too far. But what the snake's doing is trying to exercise his authority to consume that which is around him. And friends, we intervened. If you're a parent, if you're a teacher, and you begin to sense that something is getting close to one of your kids that you know is harmful, insofar as you are able to exercise influence in that moment, and, and you know, kids grow up, and, and we don't, our influence changes over time, even if our love doesn't. You will intervene. Because for all of their wonder, and for all of the ways in which students grow into wisdom so quickly, you know, and I know, and even they know, they need your assistance to avoid what will harm. Now kids, you, you hate me saying that. You don't believe it. You're wrong, but I get it. The picture there is of the Lord intervening to prevent those from being swallowed up by something that they will then become. And therefore, yours and my integrity, according to this psalm, depends upon the God that we know acting in this way, not only for stability, not only for security, but also for integrity. So just take those three things. Integrity, or sorry, stability, security, integrity. If you want to summarize all those, flatten them into a pancake, what do they, what do they mean What's the one thing they might represent? The idea of indestructibility. I'm talking about a kind of life where you are anchored, and poised, and you love what's honorable. That's indestructibility. And that's freedom. Who wouldn't want that? How do we get it? Ironically, I think we get it from what we hear in verse 4, which, if it's not the most con, um, complicated verse, it's perhaps the most confusing when it says this, Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. Now, that's just a prayer for the people. Lord, do good to we who do good. If you're a Christian, then you hear those words and you kind of do the RCA dog. What? Not because you disagree with it necessarily, but you wonder in your own heart, wait a minute, I thought, I thought Jesus was all about, uh, I, I thought the problem with us is that we weren't good in order to merit any of God's good. Well, that's true. So what is verse 4 getting at? Verse 4, at the same time that it is a prayer for the people, it is a pointer to something greater than itself and a window into how I think we depend on him for those things. Russ, I don't know if you have this clip even available, but if the Shawshank there, is it there? The Shawshank Redemption is about men in a prison in Pennsylvania, and one of the characters is named Andy Dufresne, and he is a Renaissance man, even though a convicted murderer. But in this one moment, he has great compassion for all of his fellow um, prisoners, and he commandeers the sound system to do this. 
have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are best left unsaid. I like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you, those voices soared higher and farther than anybody in a great place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man at Shawshank felt free. What made them free? They were captivated by beauty for which they had no words, but which they could not deny. Beloved and welcome guests, whether you're a believer or a nihilist, I welcome you. But I believe that the way to declare our dependence is to listen to verse 4 about do good to those who are good, but to listen to it with a keen ear for Jesus. Because when we listen to Jesus, we have to first of all marvel, like they marveled. Jesus was the embodiment of stability and security and integrity. He didn't have to ask permission to say what he said. He didn't need somebody's approval to do what he did. He didn't return hateful words with defensive words. He was not vengeful upon those who were his enemies. And in that sense, he was indestructible. Who wouldn't want the kind of freedom that he walked around like that with? In fact, that's what the author of Hebrews says of him. Jesus was a priest. He represented us, us to God, but not because of the basis of him being part of a particular tribe, but because of an indestructible life that he exhibited. And we marvel at that but we mostly marvel about how he let his indestructibility become vulnerable. How he let himself be moved. How he let himself be surrounded, not by that which would protect him, but by that which would vanquish him. And how by in his suffering, do you know what he did? He did good, he did good to those who are not good, like you and like me. And that's the gospel. And in that we marvel. And if we are captivated by that, there is freedom. We have, to, we have to lean into him and listen to him until we marvel. And once we've marveled, then we must believe. Verse 4 is not a contradiction to the gospel. Verse 4 is just saying this. Your actions matter. And your actions come from your affections, what you love. You do what you desire to do. And therefore, to do good is to love what is good. And that's the other reason why we depend on God, because you and I will not love what is good until he does something in us. And this he does through Jesus. We love what is good and then we come to do what is good, and therefore we believe him who is good, and that that goodness comes to us primarily through grace. 
We depend on him for our integrity that he might protect us from that which lead us astray, but we also depend on him for our integrity that he might renew our hearts that we might actually love what is good. We have to declare our dependence in those two ways, to marvel at him and to believe in him. Alexis de Focqueville, near the end of that famous volume, said this, I doubt whether men, I doubt whether men Man can ever support at the same time complete religious independence and entire public freedom. And I am inclined to think that if faith be wanting in him, he must serve. And if he be free, he must believe. That's just a way of his saying, those who wish to be free must be in submission to something greater than themselves. And he, as the psalm, as Jesus himself would commend to us the God who sent his son to make us his. And that is why Jesus says, if you abide in me, truly you are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Happy Dependence Day, people. Do not shrink back from declaring that dependence. Let's pray. Father, in all the ways that I have felt unstable and insecure and lacking in integrity this week, for all the ways in which my brethren here or my acquaintances may have felt the same, would you help us to be captivated again by the beauty that is in your Son who would defend us even against our own shaming of ourselves at the same time that he would die for sin and show us what it means to live for a kingdom that is not of this earth. Father, whatever it is that plagues us this day, whatever words or thoughts will haunt me this afternoon or they, would you help us to run to the one who tells us to love and for God's sake. For this nation, for this church, for our very selves we pray. Amen. Now would you go with these words of benediction. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The peace of the Lord be with you. Dismissed.